Hi everyone, this is the Hearsay Podcast. My name is Saya. Welcome to number 57 of this series of chats. This particular chat is with my dear friend Georgia Mooney of the band All Our Exes Live in Texas. She is also the creator of the Supergroup live shows, um, which she's been putting on in Sydney and they've been so amazing. So hopefully she'll get to come back and do those once live music is allowed once again. Um, I normally say at the beginning of these episodes, uh, you know, of recent times that this is a COVID distraction podcast. However, this one is a little bit different because Georgia actually got COVID-19 and it's been really, really hell and very, very scary and continues to be very scary because there are just so many unknowns. So there's actually quite a bit of COVID talk in this one, as well as music talk. And I should give a large content warning for this one as uh, there is quite a bit of smut talk at the end. We tried to be professional, but it did deteriorate about halfway through. So maybe be careful if listening with small kids. Georgia Strange and very funny show story was illustrated by Hannah Factor. You can find more of her beautiful work on Instagram at Hannah with an H at the end dot factor dot art. I don't talk about this very often, but did you know that my last question of every podcast is always, what's your strangest show experience? And then I send the audio of that story to a different artist slash illustrator slash excellent person um, to illustrate however they like. And you can see them on Instagram at hearsay podcast. The illustrator always has 100% freedom to do whatever they like. And it's such a joy to see what people come up with. I should also tell you that I quite often ask the interviewee if they have anyone in mind that might like to do the picture, but I'm always looking for people. So please drop me a line if you'd like to do one and maybe we can make it happen. Um, Also, just feel free to drop me a line anytime. Um, You can contact me on uh, Instagram or Facebook. I really love hearing from you. Also, if you want to do something really nice, please go to iTunes and give the podcast five stars and I will love you forever. Okay, enough intro chat from me. Here is episode number 57 with Georgia Mooney. Georgia Mooney. Hi, Saya. I'm so happy to be talking to you, even though I talk to you most days of my life. <laughs> I'm really happy that we're finally talking on the record. <laughs> Official chat. I'm quite nervous. Are you? Yeah, I am. This is an artist-friendly environment. I'm mm. not going to expose anything. Safe space. <laughs> well, you know all my secrets, so you really could. Because I was wondering if you would um, inform the your lovely audience that we do talk on a daily basis. So it's a yes. What I what I was going to say is I think that I'm going to try to make a very conscious effort to be professional. <laughs> <laughs> I I think that it could quite easily spiral into a very unprofessional territory, <laughs> and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to. Try to keep it together and ask you some questions that, you know, I probably have never asked you before because they're music type questions. Okay. Not not about your feelings. So. 
I think we should have a blend of professionalism and unprofessionalism. Oh, definitely. Professionalism kicking in. Mm. Um, can you tell me, so I don't actually know this about you. Can you tell me if you grew up in a musical household? Did you remember your first memories of music as a kid? Um, I, I suppose I, I grew up in a music loving household. My mum, yeah, especially mum. Mum's a big music lover and she used to have a real ritual of p- putting on loud music every night when she was cooking dinner and we would have a dance around the kitchen in socks, um, which was a good time. What kind of music was it? Well, it would be like Doobie Brothers, Queen, and then it would be like Sound, sound of Music, <laughs> Joni Mitchell. Um, uh, yeah, quite a lot of the old folkies like Joni Mitchell and a bit of Neil Young and that sort of vibe. But my dad's side is not musical at all. Mum's, my auntie is an opera singer with Opera Australia. She's amazing. And so, and quite a few people on mum's side are quite musical. There's, yes, a lot of singers, a lot of opera singers and and, you know, a bit of violin playing, all that kind of thing. Wow. Did you ever want to go down the opera path? No, I mean, I I like opera. I do. And I definitely feel very lucky to have had childhood where we got to go to the opera house and see Auntie Roxanne, you know, playing the role of Carmen in Carmen. And wow. have all these amazing kind of opera um experiences but I never was I do remember being like falling asleep and just being so keen for the ice cream at interval (laughs) oh yeah my parents used to take me to classical shows too I remember them taking me to see orchestras and Nigel Kennedy and yeah you know and um Placido Domingo and all these things that that were actually quite incredible and would have been amazing as an adult. But as a kid, I was like, fuck my life. (laughs) I know. I hated it. But I think that possibly, I think there were definitely moments. There would have been moments where your little brain kind of got lost and got to go on a little Mm. wanderings. And and I think that is, I mean, maybe that's a bit wrong to say this, but I think that's one of the lovely experiences about going to see... um, classical music or opera that's not in a language that you understand is that you kind of can it's space to drift as well as appreciate what's happening in front of you but kind of have your have your mind sort of go meandering so I feel yeah I'm glad to have had all this the symphonic experiences as a child but I was never never tempted to do opera I think also because I was just aware of how hard it was I just thought oh don't know don't know about that yeah so much practicing involved in that career I thought Auntie Roxanne was just so glamorous and fabulous and I was in awe of her and I still am quite in awe of her I just never maybe I'd never had had the confidence to really contemplate that and I yeah and I remember everyone used to just talk about how hard it was and and that and the fact that we would hear a lot about how you know, she might have a season and then she would have periods of auditions and the competition and the that thing of having to wait for a role or have other people dictate when and when and, you know, when you can work and when you don't have work. And that, mm. it just seemed very stressful. That That's something that I think is 
nice about music, you know, contemporary music, is that you can um, you just you can make your own work and and like acting or music theatre or opera, you have to be given permission, and that would be yeah you don't you can make your own gigs you don't have to rely on other people as much except maybe when you're starting out you rely on other people a lot but yeah and you're not as directly compared you're not in a group competing for one position that's true you know each to their own but you did end up studying contemporary music and jazz (laughs) later on in life are you very impressed by my professionalism? <laughs> I'm impressed that you know you know that I did two uh, courses and what they were. I'm very good at researching. I'm also just wondering where that would be on the internet. Um, that's correct, Saya. Yes, um, I did. <laughs> I wanted to be a songwriter from an early age. Oh, I wanted to be like a member of the Spice Girls for a long time. And then when I worked out, that wasn't possible. I wanted to write my own songs, but I didn't really understand how you could do that. I, I used to think that when you, like if you sat at the piano and put your fingers on the keys, that some sort of spirit would <laughs> move your fingers for you and you would just write a song. Like there was some sort of magical thing that would take over. I still kind of believe that. <laughs> do you think in a sort of spiritual way? No, I, I maybe not a spiritual way, but I definitely believe that it's it's maybe like a a witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not a witchcraft. May, I just think there's something that happens that's out of your control when when you are writing a song. Yeah, it sort of you conjure it in a way. Well, it's true. You sort of do. You kind of go into a bit of a trance-like state in order to spend that amount of time focusing so hard. But I think you need a little bit of training before that happens. So are you talking about when you first thought that you were a kid and you would just... Yeah, I was like 12. Put your hands on the piano. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd be like, well, the spirit's not <laughs> not in me today. I'll try tomorrow. That's um, really cute. I just didn't know how to even start to write a song but um, then in about year nine, I heard about um, WAPA, the WA Academy of Performing Arts, and that they had a contemporary music course, which was all about original music and songwriting and, you know, pop and, you know, it wasn't jazz or classical. It was kind of anything else. And I was like, well, I'm going to do that. And then I just made a decision not knowing much else and was like from that point at age, whatever, 14, 15, I was like, that's where I'm going. I don't care about school anymore. I'm going to that course in Perth. <laughs> wow. And how do, how do you get into a course like that? Do you need to audition? Yeah, it was audition and I think there was a music theory test and an interview and stuff. So did you learn piano then? Did you do your grades and theory? Yep, I did piano lessons, classical piano from, I don't know, about the age of seven or so and was doing my piano lessons and I also was doing singing lessons by then and I was quite, yeah, I was quite determined. I was like, I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to do. 
but I was also extremely shy and extremely private about it. So I didn't really tell anyone. I used to make my whole family leave the house if I was going to practice singing, (laughs) which is ridiculous. And it was really selfish. Um, And I was just petrified. I was so nervous. But for some reason I thought, no, this is, yeah, I absolutely want to do this despite being yeah really shy about performing or about even showing anything to my friends or family or yeah so by the time I left high school and did the audition and got in and was like cool mum and dad I'm moving to Perth and I'm going to Whopper they were sort of like well we've never heard her sing but I hope she's all right (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of funny and so you got in and so was your instrument then at Whopper voice yeah, you could only have one. And so I thought, yeah, I'd do singing. And I did two years of contemporary music and then half of the jazz degree. And it was it was amazing. It was full on. It was that, I mean, I don't know if you've seen that movie Whiplash, that kind of jazz school terror thing. Yeah, I feel still probably a bit traumatised by my experience really? at jazz school. A little, like not, I have not seen Whiplash and I certainly didn't, um, you know, draw, no one drew blood or anything. But it was that, <laughs> that like, that thing where it was sort of teaching by instilling fear into you and the reason in the end that I left in second year instead of finishing third year was that I felt like I was I had virtually no self-esteem left because I'd just been told that I was not good enough so much and I'd seen so many people you know finish third year and stop doing music completely because they were just empty shells that I was like if I want to have a shred of shred of confidence left I think I have to get out because it was just too too intense too competitive and and too kind of narrow-minded um about what how you should sing and how often you should practice and how many hours you had to do and and it was yeah it was hardcore but at the same time I learned I learned a lot about music and a theory of music and I learned how to you know write charts and make arrangements and and all of and I did heaps of performing and just that thing of I think being in an institution where you are actively doing music or practicing music five days a week is is a real privilege um but Mm. but it was also yeah a bit brutal So did you then coming out of that environment, did you feel like you had a bit of imposter syndrome when you then finally started trying to make music? Yeah, totally. And um, That's so sad because I feel like you're such a beautiful singer. It's so strange to me that anyone would ever make you feel like you weren't a good singer. I mean, there were, there were lovely teachers in the mix and like I had lovely singing teachers in particular and I think I could kind of get a bit of comfort from the fact that I knew I didn't really want to be a jazz singer so I knew I was sort of more into the folky land and so I could sort of be like oh well that's okay if I'm not the best jazz singer because I don't really want to be one so you know whatever um yeah I definitely felt 
really insecure for a long time but also probably was a bit toughened up by it um and had a bit of a thick skin from having to do you know having to do performances in front of all the teachers and all the all the all your peers and where and then they immediately all critique you in a like floodlit room and um <laughs> oh it's so really awful. Fun. yeah <laughs> um and you know I made really great friendships with other students as well but I think I still am, am still sort of unlearning a lot of stuff that I learned at the con because it is so rigid and because you are I mean, especially in a jazz degree, you're, you're sort of comparing yourself to people like Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald and you're thinking, well, these people are masters and also yeah. they, lived, <laughs> they lived decades ago and like how can I can't really put this into my world. Yeah. But also that thing I was thinking today how um, I, I, I really struggled with the idea that I didn't or the knowledge that I didn't practice you know six hours a day and I'm not someone who just sits in a room and plays and plays and plays and plays and plays every day all day I really like to do other stuff and I think even today a bit I'm still kind of coming to terms with the idea that that is okay that you can still be a musician and it be your ultimate passion and and all you want to do is write songs and play songs but not actually need or want to be singing and playing all day every day I can go I can go weeks without doing it and yeah still feel okay about that I was thinking about this just today because Mm. I um as you know I love Jeff Tweedy and he actually Mm. you know he makes music every day and and he goes to the studio and works and if something works then great he'll you know use it later on and if something doesn't work he feels accomplished of having done something that day Mm. and then I was listening to a podcast today which sort of um, was a a bit of a sad podcast about Justin Townsville who's just Mm, passed away this week and he was saying that he writes 12 songs a year and that mm. those 12 songs end up on an album. Yeah. And, you know, to me, those two artists are equally as amazing. Mm. And one of them works really, really hard every day. And one of them, I mean, I don't know how how long it took Justin Townsville to write one song. And I'm sure he worked a lot on the one song. But, yeah, um, yeah I find that so interesting that some people do and some people don't. And I think both is correct. Yeah, that it doesn't make you any less of a musician, you know. I also think that when you're on tour all the time, like because my kind of preferred way of writing songs is to allocate a chunk of time and go away and completely remove myself from my day-to-day life. So like yes. go somewhere and hire a little house and, and for three weeks and have a big have a sesh because I'm I'm I've always been jealous of people who can just write on tour, like at the sound chat. Oh yeah, I've never done that. Yeah, or in the hotel room or we would like with exes sometimes we were touring, you know, eight or nine months of the year and so I was never I felt like I was almost never writing songs and I just I couldn't imagine writing a song on tour. I was just like, How? Where's the time? Where's the headspace? I don't know how people do that either. Yeah. But also for me, because my instrument is is electric, if mm-hmm. I was going to 
go back to yeah. the hotel room. I'd have to get speakers and you know, or headphones yeah, or stuff. Just like what a drag. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> and then you miss out on like going to the bar afterwards and having a drink. That's right. Having a yeah. chat with some strangers. That's right. <laughs> That's what it's about. But can we go back to, mm. so when you finished um, in WA, when you came back to the East Coast, mm-hmm. well, you weren't a shell of a human like some of the other students were. <laughs> you saved yourself from being a shell. How did you get into playing music in Sydney? Well, in Perth, I had started writing my own songs. I'd worked out how to uh, do that uh, of my own accord instead of waiting for the spirit. Um, yeah. <laughs> So I'd started writing songs and I started You realised doing... the spirit was inside you all along. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, um, so yeah, I started sort of doing some little songwritery gigs and there were, I just got really lucky. There were a couple of people who were really encouraging and, who you know, people who put on gigs and um, or other musicians who would ask me to open for them and... and so, and I think the third the third gig that I ever did solo, and this is at the point where you, it's like you've written four or five songs and you play those five songs and that's your whole show and that's all you can do. Yeah. <laughs> that's all you can do. Yeah. Um, and, but, yeah, that my third gig was opening for Passenger, um, who was like this, yeah, this UK songwriter guy that there was sort of a bit of buzz around and he was a, busker and a and very charming kind of troubadoury vibe and he said um he was just really encouraging and he was like oh th- this is great you know come on tour with me and um you know let's go around Australia he was doing a bunch of shows and that was around the time yeah that was pretty much the thing that was like made the decision for me to leave Whopper because I was like oh well I've been offered this tour so I'm just gonna go on tour so I um yeah, played some shows with him in Sydney and and felt so encouraged by um, his confidence in me and, and the audience's kind of reception that I, then I quickly made a little EP and then and moved back to Sydney and sort of started um, opening for people and doing songwriter nights and stuff like that. Um, and then how long between that and then forming... The all our exes live in Texas. Yeah, I was probably only back in Sydney for maybe less than a year, playing a few little shows. And at that time, there was this really awesome, and there, I mean, there still totally is, except most people are moving away and having babies now. But um, there was a really, really great sort of like folk and bluegrass scene in in Sydney, and we would all go to each other's shows. And you know, that's how I met Alana Stone and. And Hannah, who had been at Whopper with me, who's also in Nexus, she decided to move to Sydney. And also around the same time, Katie moved from Brisbane to Sydney and we were all kind of playing these little solo shows and going to each other's gigs. And then we were starting to ask each other to do, you know, backing vocals for one another. And we were just also having, you know, like we were that that age, we were kind of like 21 and um, drinking all the time, having having big parties where we that would end up in these sort of jam sessions. Um, an, another thing that I've never really felt comfortable with, but other other people have. <laughs> Jamming to me is such a yucky word. Oh, I if know. If someone asks me for a jam, I just 
It's a nightmare. <laughs> no, yeah, I would. I was the one who's just sitting quietly in the corner, staring at people, going, "How do you know what to do?" <laughs> and then just having forming crushes on everyone, basically. Yeah. So we four gals kind of became um, really fast friends, and then it was uh, actually a friend of ours, who James Daly, who's an amazing mandolin player and member of fabulous bluegrass band the Morrisons who was like oh I've put on I'm putting on this show um it's no brother where art thou tribute show why don't you four form a band and all because you all sing why don't you all form a band and um you know sing some harmonies together and you can open the show and we were like oh yeah all right it's kind of annoying in hindsight now that, that you know um someone else had the idea (laughs) but um and James had been sort of drunkenly teaching me the mandolin every you know few days of every party and so um he was like George let's go to the shops and we'll buy a mandolin and I was like okay yeah cool let's buy a mandolin yeah let's all play instruments that we don't normally play because we were all playing (laughs) we were all playing the piano and singing and we were like yeah let's all do different stuff and then we can form a string band would it be just like them but better and um (laughs) them being like all the dudes who were in all of the super fast playing bluegrass bands in Sydney um and yeah, and so we I bought a mandolin three weeks before the first gig and then learned, we learned five songs. One was an original called All Our Exes Live in Texas, which was a horrible song, just appalling. <laughs> um, and one was a song by Kate and Anna McGarrigal. One was like an old country song. Oh, and yeah, some... Um, Oh, brother songs, and then one song by the Muppets where we wore oh, wigs which and song? beards. <laughs> I am my own grandpa. Oh my god! Well, seven. I was really hoping it was going to be. I'm a GNU. How do you do? <laughs> one of my favorite Muppet songs. <laughs> but do you know I'm my own grandpa? Because that is a good song. I love that song. Um, but yeah, that was the birth of X's. It was like a very kind of shambolic shove together of of humans and instruments that we didn't normally play and that's um, great yeah I feel like that's I met you around um just after X's formed because I was doing one of my first solo tours and I was getting different girls backing singers to sing with me in every city and because I knew Hannah um Mm. because she worked for my record label for a long time um she was like yeah we'll do it and I think it was everyone except Katie I don't know maybe Katie was out of town but um yeah I have such fond memories of that too just thinking oh these girls because we just learned the harmonies not that they were very complicated harmonies to my songs but we just learned it in the afternoon and then did a live to tv recording that day (laughs) yeah it was a real cram but it was so it was so nice. Sometimes I love that because it's just it's just so fresh in your head and you're having to focus so much. It's kind of really exhilarating. But yeah, that was so nice. Was and, yeah, wonderful. I loved your songs. And I remember thinking, I really want to be friends with Saya. How do you ask an adult <laughs> person to be your new friend? <laughs> we figured it out somehow. I don't know yeah. how we did it, but we did it. <laughs> Yeah, I um, I have I have lots of really funny sort of you know the beginning of our friendship 
memories I definitely you know oh my a lot of you coming to Brisbane and playing and um and us having (gasps) like a little coffee in the afternoon after sound check or yeah um, and then of course when you went on tour with the Backstreet Boys (laughs) which is a very funny memory so just to paint the picture for all the listeners it was (laughs) the Backstreet Boys and one support, which was all our exes live in Texas, <laughs> and Backstreet Boys, no band, all backing track. <laughs> yeah. Um, all our exes live in Texas. A mandolin, <laughs> a, a <laughs> guitar, acoustic guitar, a ukulele, and a piano a accordion. Piano accordion. <laughs> so and and four beautiful, gorgeous girls singing with the biggest boy band of all time. Everyone was like what is happening why oh, no. how did this did this happen it, um, yeah and I was very excited to come along and I danced side of stage <laughs> to Backstreet Boys with you <laughs> and I felt so like funny. that was a real amazing point in our friendship it was that was a strong bonding moment because we were both sort of like pinging with how hilarious and weird is this but also it's so fun it was at the entertainment center. Yeah. I still don't quite understand how that happened. Do you know how that happened? Um I I yeah, I'm shocked by that still. Um mm. we we asked our booking agent to put us forward thinking, oh, you know, this will fulfill our 12-year-old uh boy band dreams and but obviously never happened because we're a tiny folk band from Sydney who at yeah. that point had re- yeah we'd only been together for about a year and we were just doing little shows and we really weren't um very polished <laughs> we just we were just <laughs> still a baby band and um but then apparently yeah it kind of we kept on sort of um, we'd get a call from the from the booking agent saying, oh, yeah, we're sort of like down to the final few. I don't know why they, they would give us updates on like, yeah, we're, it's between this person, this person, this person. Again, we kept on going, getting down to the, you know, um, final two or whatever. And then apparently the Backstreet Boys themselves watched our video and were like, yeah, let's get those guys. They seem like a laugh. Amazing. Which is quite funny. But we only found out two days before the first gig and we were playing. (laughs) That's wild. Which is nuts. Which actually also sort of suggests that someone pulled out last minute. Someone definitely cancelled. Probably Jessica Mowboy was in and then she had something better to do. (laughs) And they were like, let's get those weirdos who definitely don't have something better to do. But we were playing a time. We were playing a little gig at the Vanguard, and then yeah, um, found out that two days later we had to play Rod Laver Arena, which was oh, just so funny. Um, that is really funny. But it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the show that I saw while you were playing, the Backstreet Boys came out on stage and took a selfie with you guys. Oh yeah, they like and stage everyone bombed. was just like, whoa. <laughs> That moment, I remember thinking, because to be honest, we received like a bit of negativity from the Backstreet Boys fans. There was like, there were comments on the Live Nation Facebook post saying, hey, this is the support act. There was like a string of comments going, who the fuck are these guys? (laughs) Like in the US, they got Avril Lavigne and we get these idiots. They're not even famous in their own country. Who the fuck? And so we're like, oh, well, we're dead. We're going to be 
<laughs> we're going to be booed off the stage. Um, so the bar was set low and we were just like, fuck it, we're going to have a good time for our primary yeah. school selves. But, of um, course. And it was... <laughs> It was so fun. But I remember, yeah, so we would start playing and the, all the house lights are on and it's probably like any support of, you know, at a stadium show where, yeah, it's house lights on. Most people, I mean, particularly for us because we were unknown, most people had not turned up. So it was sure. like filing in slowly and it was fun and like there were people were getting into it but as soon as the Backstreet Boys came on behind us like the sound that erupted from the crowd I was like oh my god that's what cheering sounds like <laughs> we didn't know for a minute that they were behind us and we were like fuck yeah we're rocking oh no damn it no oh, damn it but nobody booed you well I didn't hear any boos I, I don't think there were any booze. But yeah, so, but I mean, you guys then went on to do a ton of touring. So All Our Exes supported Midnight Oil and a whole bunch of like really amazing overseas tours. Yeah. Um, how do you feel when you remember that, that time in our <laughs> lives <laughs> where we got to go overseas? Oh, remember gigs. Um mm. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, it, we, I mean, I've, I've got very fond memories. It was, it was, it was awesome. It was bloody, bloody fun and completely wild and unexpected. I think that's a really nice thing about this job is you just don't know what might be coming around the corner and yeah, doing things like opening for Midnight Oil in this beautiful sort of 3000 seat gorgeous venues along the west coast of the states and um all that kind of stuff you just you never expect and that's really special but um we kind of like yeah we we really went hard for quite a while we kind of um i think because initially we thought well initially we thought we were just going to do this one gig that our friend had suggested we do and that's why we picked a stupid band name (laughs) and we were like well That'll be funny for one show and then we'll never do another gig. But then we just sort of like someone else asked us to do something and then someone asked us to do something else and it just kind of kept snowballing. And and in the meantime, we were like, okay, yeah, sure, we'll do that. But we're also all doing our solo stuff. So they said, this is just a, not a thing. But we'll okay, we'll do that one and do that one and do that. And then it was like, oh, now we've got a booking agent. So they're actively trying to get gigs and now we've got a manager. And suddenly we're all discussing you know that we're prioritizing this over anything else and now suddenly it's full time and now we're touring non-stop and I think it was that thing of like saying saying yes to absolutely everything also to kind of be able to afford the next thing so it was like saying yes to everything to be able to break even to be able to afford to go to the states to then like so it was just kind of kept going and going and going and then before you know it it's like six years it's really fun but I can really relate to the um, fatigue that you get when you can't see yourself getting a break or having a rest yeah I think I think yeah that thing as well when you're maybe you're kind of always planning sort of three to six months ahead but then you're never really thinking much beyond. So you're sort of just constantly planning a bit ahead, a bit ahead, and then catching up and then catching up. And so, I mean, one thing we found really hard was um, finding time to write songs or to record songs. So, you know, 
for having been touring and playing shows for yeah almost seven years we've only we only got around to making one ep and one album because otherwise we were playing shows all the time so you have to actively go okay no we have to say no to some stuff so that we can actually make an album yeah um but it was just i don't know maybe it's that sense of you you don't know when you're not going to get asked to a gig to do a gig so you got to keep saying yes to stuff or of course that kind of thing a bit so you you recorded an ep and an album which are both really beautiful can you tell me a bit about the process of working out harmonies because that's such a massive part of that band and Mm. something that definitely took my breath away and i'm sure everyone's breath away in the room that that saw you guys play um how did you work out who was singing what well the way that we sort of worked with songs was that we would individually write, you know, in our own time and then bring in pretty much, a, you know, a skeleton of a song pretty like or pretty well-formed song to rehearsal and, um, you know, the idea being that we would take turns to do the lead and we'd sing our own songs but and then it would always be even distribution of songs. And so then mm-hmm. it, when it came to kind of building up harmonies and arrangements and stuff, it sort of came really naturally. I, I hate saying that, but I think because we had all spent so much time in choirs and as backing vocalists, we could sort of just slot in and we just got really lucky with how our voices happened to blend quite well together despite being all individually really different so you know um say if it was my song I'd be singing the song and then someone would pick up a harmony and then someone would go okay if you could do that I'll go above you and then you know you go below blah 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 and we just sort of hash it out on the spot and it was just generally kind of quite organic you know um Mm, organic (laughs) organic (laughs) so (laughs) Yeah, I d- yeah, we kind of got lucky with not – we never really had to work that hard with finding harmonies. It just sort of – it just sort of meshed well. And That's maybe, great. I don't know. I think we're also when we started X's, we, our, our solo stuff was all a bit kind of maybe a bit more like singer-songwriter poppy that with X's we were like, we want to do something different. We want to we wanna do that kind of country folk – harmony almost traditional thing and so we really listened to heaps of carter family and gillian welch and david rawlings and the you know dolly and linda and emmy lou and and with and so that felt a bit novelty getting into that because we thought this is just a different side project that we're doing and yeah didn't realize it would become the main project and did you guys fight over who would get the single <laughs> no, well we do from the very start. This is one thing that one thing that I think we did quite well in working out from the very start. We were like, okay, so every gig it's like everyone sings the same number of songs. We're going to switch around the harmonies all the time. So, you know, Lani might be on the on the high harmony for this song, but she'll go on the low for the So we're always mixing it up so no one's um doing the same thing all the time. And we were always like we're going to do 25, 25, 25 songwriter split and we're going to release singles, you know, one at a time, regardless of what we think, kind of regardless of which song we think should really be a single. We're just going to do, 
Yeah. You're one, you're Very one, you're fair. one, you're one. Yeah, really, yeah. really fair. Um, and I think that kept the egos in check for... That's so good. I mean, because Hannah at that time had worked a bit in management and had seen horrible fights um, because mm. of splits and that kind of thing. So I think we were, like, really determined to be really even Stephen. And that, yeah, yeah, definitely worked well. It's something that I don't ask about very often because it's such a personal thing within mm. bands and maybe people don't want to actually open up about it. But I, um, I've definitely been in bands that deal with that in different mm. ways and I think it's a it's a touchy subject totally mm. yeah and it's really hard because because you could get really nitpicky I mean you know we were all writing the songs separately we didn't have many songs that we all wrote together in the room so they were really you know that person's song that person's song but we sort of figured that by the time you you know, by the time you workshop them, rehearse them, add your own little bits, and then mostly touring all the time, playing all the time, like dedicating so much of your personal time to the band, it's it would be really unfair for, you know, if one person's song kind of did better than the others to um, for them to be making more money when the time spent mm. is very much equal. And, and, yeah, it just eliminated any feeling of like so-and-so's songs are getting are earning us more or, or whatever I, I sort of I think it's one of those things that's worth considering more than just who wrote that exact bit in that exact moment I agree also let's go forward to what you're doing now you are about to embark on recording a solo record Yes. Um, unfortunately, COVID happened. COVID happened to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we'll, we'll touch on that a bit later. Yeah, just talk about like what, what you're planning to do for your solo record that, that's very exciting and is, you know, imminent. Yeah, well, yeah, I hope it's – it is exciting. I hope it's exciting. Um, I was – yep, I'd planned to make an album in – a beautiful studio in San Francisco with lovely producer Noah Georgeson in May. But then, yep, COVID happened. And so now um, obviously can't go to America. So we're, we're still like pumped on the idea and we're going to try and do a long distance album, which I'm still working out in my head. But basically, yeah, it'll be everyone doing their bits from their own studio from either their home studios or from studios that I've booked them in in their various cities. So we were kind of like, well, let's keep the ball rolling. We're still really we're still really pumped about it. You can do your bits from home. We can do some video conference pre-production and, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, if we're not going to – if we're going to do it long distance, let's do it really long distance and have, you know, people from all over the world add their bits I mean, I love recording in a studio so much that um, – and I love that thing that happens where, you know, a lot of the creative decisions kind of happen in the moment where someone plays something a bit weird and you go, oh, I really love that. That was amazing. Do that. Do that. But a bit like that. And, you know, there's – that element will be missing, which I'm sad about. But I think there's potential for it to be really creatively interesting in another way by having people um, – I don't know, kind of have their own space and time to do their bits 
and and then thinking I think purely because you have to think really carefully about how you put the puzzle together and you know after I do the guide then who's the next person we get to do their things and like you have to arrange it quite a lot in your head before it's happening that that has potential to be kind of interesting that's what I'm hoping at least anyway I'm only at the recording guide tracks part so I I've, I'm really optimistic I think it's gonna be really really great and I think that it'll be a fun puzzle to put together I think it'll be fun and also I, I feel like it's just nice to have a project that can take a bit of time and you know distract from the hell that is the current global scenario no well talking of the hell that is the current global scenario you came back from the UK where you were just before you were going to go to the US to record your album and you were feeling very shitty you were feeling quite shitty just before as well Mm. got a bit better flew home yeah obviously deteriorated yeah what what happened next well yeah, so I'd moved to the UK officially, finally, after spending, yeah, I spent most of last year there and I sort of was going back and forth a lot, but I'd moved there at the end of February and I'd been there for two weeks before a contracting coronavirus. But at the time in the UK, it was such early days, everyone everyone didn't really know what was going on and the government advice was, you know, unless you've got a cough a persistent cough and a fever. You probably don't have it, but even if you do, just stay home for two weeks and isolate yourself. And so I was like, I'm pretty sure I don't have it. I don't have a cough or anything, but I'll just stay home anyway. And and then in the meantime, you know, ScoMo was like, we're closing all the flights, get back. And I was like, ah, oh, damn it, I really don't want to leave, but maybe I'll just book a flight and then I can decide on the day, you know, worst case scenario, I'll lose a couple of thousand bucks decide whether or not I feel like flying home so I think it was like day 16 after feeling unwell and I and I flew home and then yeah got much worse got a test had the virus proceeded to isolate for five weeks and in that time you were like my go-to gal we would we were texting and messaging (laughs) multiple times a day I just remember feeling like Saya is just the best friend ever and I don't it was it was one of those I don't know I think maybe there are times when you kind of realize who your really good mates are but like because of the way when you're feeling sad and miserable or sick or desperate who you kind of want to reach to and 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 you were definitely that person for me and um that was yeah so that was that was kind of it's weird to think now obviously I was I was really unwell and I was scared and there were a couple of nights where I contemplated life and death but apart from that I have some sort of like weirdly fond memories of just yeah being in jammies all just day talking to you <laughs> just of you I was worried a lot you know I I checked in a lot I yeah. got scared when I didn't hear from you um and you know, and sometimes that was just because you were asleep and that's (laughs) obviously fine. But um, there was definitely times when, you know, you had to call emergency, Mm. you went to hospital, um, they came and and sat with you and wearing hazmat suits. Mm. You know, it it sounded like a really scary time. Yeah. 
it was a it was a, it was a weird full on time. I think definitely at the start, you know, because that was early March and we were all still kind of coming to terms with what this thing was and who it affected and and I assumed because I'm you know pretty young and healthy that I would be fine. But it was just such a scary um up and down unpredictable experience that kept going for weeks and you know I was spending Mm. so much time sleeping and just and trying to eat lots of healthy food and resting and resting and resting and then I would still feel that I was continuing to crash really randomly and new symptoms would come out of nowhere like suddenly I was having chest pain like four weeks in and shortness of breath and and over that time as well you know news is coming out that actually this this affects young people there are, there are young people dying and and your you know your age and your health doesn't necessarily indicate how well you will recover or you know even if you will recover so then your mental health starts to spiral and it was yeah it was full on I think I, yeah, I had one or two nights where, I was, particularly the night where I went to hospital and I was texting you a lot, where I was like, oh, maybe I'll die, um, oh. <laughs> which was a bit intense. But so also I, when I had that feeling, I felt really calm about it. And I was like, oh, this is that thing they talk about when you're thinking about dying, but you're calm. And I was like, oh, maybe I should be more stressed. Shouldn't I be more worried about my life? <laughs> and then yeah, it's just so weird. And in, it like, seems ludicrous now to think mm. that, those were the thoughts going through my head but at the same time kind of not ludicrous because people were dying and it is a reality it's a really fucked virus um so now you know it's so many months later you still have symptoms mm -hmm. yeah you're still talking about getting shortness of breath and not being able to exert yourself as much as you used to be able to Mm. yeah scary yeah yeah, it is full on. I mean, I'm I'm really conscious of the fact that I am alive and um, you know, very lucky to yeah, be recovering and also to be in a country where the healthcare system is amazing. Like I I spent 7 weeks isolating inside and every single day got a phone call from a um New South Wales public health nurse or doctor checking how I was going and and checking you know checking on my symptoms but then also saying and how are you feeling and you know do you have enough food and and also since then like I'm I'm participating in a study that's that's running for a year which is um looking at at COVID patients and how they recover and and their um antibody resistance and how it changes over a whole year and and by doing that now I've got I've got like a incredible doctor who's in head of infectious diseases at St Vincent's and I've got a um, respiratory specialist I've got a physio and I've got two speech pathologists who are all working on me and I've had like every test under the sun to check my lungs my brain my heart all these things and it's all free and that still blows my mind um so I've never felt more looked after which is really amazing and and yeah definitely puts things into perspective it sort of makes you feel um particularly grateful and all your tests are coming back quite 
I, sh- I should say they're coming back pretty good. Yeah, I'm definitely improving. Yeah. I have, um, I have, um, you know, and I say this, I, I'm, I say this only because I think maybe COVID is still a mystery to many people, and so I feel like talking about it is yeah. valuable. Otherwise, I feel like Absolutely. I don't particularly feel comfortable, you know, banging on about feeling sick or how because so many people are in worse to, off positions but I think I well I sort of feel like an, a still sort of strange obligation to share my experience because um it is a mystery and because you basically because you can be you know 31 and healthy and have have ongoing problems for five months because of this disease so my lungs are still a bit broken um basically the system where you get you know you take oxygen in and carbon dioxide out that's a bit broken so they call it diffusion so um it's working at about 67 percent so i'm naturally hyperventilating to get enough oxygen and um Mm. and that's weird and so i feel yeah that's how i get shortness of breath and i get tired very easily and i feel quite constricted around my chest and and they think that or they sort of, yeah, they hope and think that that will get better over time, but there's still a bit of mystery about that and and I'm still having to, yeah, do a lot of resting and and um, slow lung rehabilitation through the physio and all that kind of thing. So, But your singing voice is starting to come back. Yes. So you're you're able to do a little bit more singing now. Yeah, for a lot for about four months I wasn't singing because I couldn't I didn't have enough air to get to the end of a line. But now I can do singing again. Um, yeah, just gently. I went I went to see the ENT today and they put the camera down my throat and that was awesome. <gasps> I'd never done that. I've before. had that before. It looks so much like a vagina. <laughs> it's so <laughs> vaginal. It was full on, and I said that. It was a room. It's like a slimy vagina. <laughs> I know. It was so weird because I was in. A, it was about five doctors in the room, and I was like, "Whoa, guys, it's a bit vaginal, isn't it?" And no one responded, and that was very embarrassing. <laughs> um, but it's also so cool. But um, it is really cool. But yeah, apparently it's all a bit tense in there. But that again will get better. But that's another reason to sort of try and do the album long distance over a long period of time so I can get better at the same time. 67% seems low, but mm. but, I've, but I wonder if that's still sort of better than some other. I wonder what percentage I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a very strong singer. <laughs> well, this is about oxygen and carbon dioxide. It's not about lung oh, capacity. Okay. But okay. I'm, I'm sure that your lungs are pristine. <laughs> I hope so. My flappy <laughs> vagina is working just fine. Once we had a gig in Canberra and at the a, at ANU, and Lani, Lani, bless her, Alana Stone, um, she likes to say things on stage to intentionally <laughs> shock and embarrass the other members of the band, and often they're vaginal. And once in, at <laughs> ANU, <laughs> she was like, "Oh, I went to ANU and I saw the doctor, the university doctor, once, and um, for a." gynecological exam and he said I have a pristine vagina (laughs) and she just said that for no reason between songs (laughs) on the stage (laughs) and yeah amazing I went on a theatre tour with Sarah Blasco 
Awesome. Um, and it was one of my first, it was definitely the first tour I'd, I'd done with this particular girl band that I had. So it was me and two other girls. And we all got really silly. It was 32 shows in mm. Australia. So it's a lot in <laughs> yep. Australia. Yeah. And all in beautiful old theatres. And I got so nervous because you could hear a pin drop. Mm. For some reason on that tour, I, I got some kind of penis Tourette's. Like I just, <laughs> I got so nervous that I just could not stop saying penis on stage. <laughs> what? I, a lot of the shows I would actually say to the audience, I feel I can't see any of you. Um, and I feel like I need to lower the tone to lower it more to my level. So I'm just going to say penis. And then... <laughs> People would laugh and I would feel disarmed. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'd turn into, yeah. I was like, oh, thank God. People laughed. Who knew it was such a comforting word? It was real. It was like my safe word. <laughs> when safe we played word. in Bundaberg, I had one of my dear friends um, texted me afterwards saying, um, <laughs> my dad came to see you tonight. He said, you said penis 12 times. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of times, Sarah. <laughs> Please tell your dad I'm so sorry. <laughs> At that point, they're not even in sentences. They're just coming out of nowhere. I just honestly don't know what happened. I still I'm, have a hard time explaining it, but I definitely said penis a lot on those tours <laughs> and it somehow helped me get through the shows. It would have made your set very memorable. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I have your permission to mention this, speaking of penises. Oh my God! Yes, you and I. You have, do. Um, we, you know, we were going to have a holiday in the US, mm-hmm. and we were both talking a lot about how our refunds <laughs> are going because we had to refund a lot of stuff. You know, <laughs> our com, our flights, our, our you know, whatever we, yeah. concert tickets. We were going to go see Stereo Lab, which is very sad. I we're not know. doing that. Um, mm-hmm. A whole bunch of stuff, and one thing that you had planned <laughs> was. <laughs> An erotic massage course. Mm. Mm-hmm. And they refused to give you a refund. <laughs> they refused to give me a refund. It's the only thing that I've not managed to get my money back for. And it's the most embarrassing thing. So I can't really mention it to anyone or like have a public whinge. Not that I would do that, but. Ex- well, you're doing it now. <laughs> I'm doing it now. Fuck them. But it's. It's pretty funny. I've I've googled in it in preparation for this uh, podcast. I googled the blurb because I was like, I need the actual words. So there's, I feel like in London there are things like this, and you just got to embrace them. But there's this. I somehow I discovered that you can do a like erotic massage. Oh, course. this was pre LA holiday. This was in you were still in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had I'd read about it and I was like this would be you know, I I'm I'm interested in learning some sure. special techniques, <laughs> but also <laughs> it would be hilarious, a hilarious story. And so after much contemplation, I booked a ticket and I will read you some of the description of the (laughs) workshop now because it is a special time um okay yeah a sensual massage course okay right it's to extend the duration of your lovemaking by learning the art of erotic massage and uh understand and enjoy how your pleasure gives him pleasure too anyway blah 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 blah. (laughs) so basically what it is is you start the workshop with a chat about male um sexuality and stuff then you do working in pairs 
you're taught a sensual massage routine um, covering top to toe of both sides of the naked body. So Whoa. there's two so there's two women who are doing the course and then there's a volunteer man who's lying on the bed and you learn a, ma- a massage <laughs> routine on a volunteer strange man. Then you have a 15-minute break for champagne and canapés, obviously. Obviously. Then part 2, you have to learn um an extension of that subtle massage, which includes um, subtle arousing touch with your body. So like oh. incorporating your own body, <laughs> which all I can think about is just boobs out, rubbing boobs on something. Oh, God. Just, That's what I you're think rubbing too. boobs. <laughs> then it says chest and nipple stimulation. Sure. Managing, keeping him on the edge. Very saucy. And genital massage. Wow. Then further down, it says (laughs) these two are optional. External anal stimulation. And this one's very optional. Prostate massage. (laughs) So it gets so intense. Does it say very optional? (laughs) No, No, but I'm assuming that's very optional. I feel like rubber gloves are required for that. I don't, I don't think you could pay me to do a prostate massage on a strange man. Maybe you could after enough champagne and canapes. I'm anyone's. But um, and then my favourite thing is that it finishes with 15 minutes of the man um giving you feedback on his experience. <laughs> Anyway, so I was like, I am going to do this because it will be so funny and fascinating. Yeah, and, um, great story. It cost 150 pounds, which Whoa. is a lot of money to part That's with. so and much then... money just to wank someone off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to wank a stranger. I know. <laughs> and, then, and then it didn't go ahead. Because everyone got coronavirus, including me, oh, which would have made a very sake. awkward experience. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It was cancelled and now they won't give me my money back. So it's just so become hell. Ridiculous. It's so funny. <laughs> well, I don't know how this story is going to beat that story, but I'm going to ask you my last question of the podcast, which is always, mm-hmm. what is your strangest show experience? And I feel like mm. it's just... It's going to be disappointing now after the wanking story. <laughs> it's hard to beat wanking a stranger. It is. And I was thinking about this today because I'd forgotten that that is the crucial key part of your mm. of your show. And the thing, it's it's a bit lengthy, but the, the show that sticks out, I think, is when we played this festival, Exus played a festival in New Mexico called Music on the Mothership. And <laughs> it was very much in the middle of nowhere in the desert. Um, mm-hmm. And it it was 10 hours between the previous gig and this gig. And so we drove two hours after the gig, so from about, you know, 11 to 1, stayed at a really murdery motor in, <laughs> um, <laughs> in the middle of the dark, which actually had police tape around. It was really what? scary. Yeah. <laughs> so weird. Got up at 6 a.m. and then just fanged it. Um, down Route 66 to get to this festival, not realising that on the way there was a time zone change. So as we entered New Mexico, we lost an hour 
And we didn't know that until we arrived at the festival thinking it was five past three, but it was five past four and our gig was at four. And we got there (laughs) and they were like, oh, guys, it's five past four. You're late. You can't go on. And we were like, what? 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 And then we're like, oh, okay. Um, well, it's only it's only five minutes. Are you sure we can't go in there? Like, no, guys. Seriously, no. Just just don't worry about it. Um, just don't play. Just chill backstage. And we were like, oh, oh. oh okay, fine. Don't worry. We've just driven ten hours in the desert so fast. Oh, no. <laughs> there's a there's a thing in certain bits of New Mexico where you don't really realize you're going up like the altitude becomes a thing and so and it makes you kind of headachey and it makes you um as we found out get high or drunk really fast um oh, no. so it was like um a kind of a circle when we were arriving in the festival we were like is this it because it was sort of basically a big circle of those silver caravans and then some sort of strange like star warsy looking desert kind of huts and sort of cave things and it was just full of 60 year old men in tie-dye just deadheads <laughs> it was just deadheads <laughs> so in hindsight i don't know how we would have gone down <laughs> as a show or how the hell we got booked for that gig but it was wow. it's, it's also a place where people um you know famously have ufo sightings all the time of um, course and also, everyone's high and drunk really quickly high and drunk really quickly and you're in altitude the weird land um Whoa. so as soon as we were told okay you can't go on stage and play um they're like go hang out backstage and so we went into the backstage tent and it was and, you know, admittedly, we're little baby Australians who live in a very cotton wool society and this is New Mexico and weed's legal and people are loose. And it was like there were all these long tables for all the artists and a lot, all along the table were glasses of weed and joints and like vapes and mushrooms Whoa. and like just so much stuff that we were like, <laughs> oh, my God. We couldn't believe it. And so we proceeded to basically try everything. And um, the lady at the bar was also rolling joints for people. And I was like, can can you please roll me a joint? I don't know how to roll a joint. And so she was like, okay, little girl. And then we just basically were smoking everything we could see. And oh. am I allowed to say this? And then, um, of course, <laughs> yeah, I've, we've just talked about wanking off a stranger. I think <laughs> yeah. this is, yeah, this is fun. And we were having margarita after margarita because that's what you do. Um, and then <clears throat> I met this guy who I thought was so handsome. And we were having, um, I thought we were having a bit of a vibe. We were like walk, climbing up on the top of all the silver caravans, lying down, looking at the sky, talking about the UFOs and blah, 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 blah. And then we were running into tents and dancing to um, Grateful Dead cover bands. (laughs) Genuinely (laughs) was just deadheads. And um, then Lani um, proceeded to have a fainting spell and spew on the ground. Oh, no. Which is the thing that sometimes... Lani does and it's fine she's okay um so we were looking after her and then Hannah started to feel sick and so the van became the sick bay and so 
people were visiting whenever they were feeling a bit sick in the sick bay, the van. But I was like, guys, I'm having a great time. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get lucky with this guy. Um, you guys go home. And Katie was <laughs> Katie was designated driver and she was like, okay, George, but you call me if you need me. I'm going to take these guys home. Anyway, long story short, I remember getting, I've never been so high in my life. I couldn't tell what was straight ahead and what was forwards and what was backwards and I remember at one point the guy said um who I yeah had been really hitting on he was like oh I'm really sorry but I I have a girlfriend and I just I just yelled just kiss me (laughs) (laughs) really aggressively (laughs) and he said I'm sorry I can't and then I said fine well can you please call Katie and get her to pick me up (laughs) You're like Veruca Salt. (laughs) So we called Katie and Katie came back and picked me up and um, we drove back home to the motel and um, I arrived in the motel and it it was just a real mess and then I looked at my watch as I was climbing into bed and it was quarter to seven in the evening. (laughs) Wow, what a day. (laughs) What a day. day. You peaked really early. (laughs) That's such a perfect story. And I'm so surprised I'd never heard you (laughs) tell me that before. (laughs) Thanks so much, George. I love you. Thank you, Saya. Love you too.